Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how does your brain know when you've had enough to drink each time you take a sip of water? Plus, a Groundhog Day tragedy, how North America came to celebrate this wacky holiday, and what its future might look like in lieu of the climate crisis. And finally, the Pope's personal playlist. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I am a big fan of water. I drink it pretty much nonstop. I've even been involved in several different online water enthusiast communities, some for water in general, others for seltzer. I feel like I'm pretty much always craving water, or always thirsty, anyhow. I'm not sure what that might say about me medically, but a new study published today in the journal Nature at least explains what part of my body is telling me that I have actually satiated my thirst. And it's not just the brain or the mouth. So previous research has shown that there are a few checkpoints that happen in your body that help your brain know when you've had enough to drink of water for hydration purposes, that is not like when you're intoxicated. So first, when the water gets in your mouth, your brain gets a sort of refreshing feeling, according to Yukioka, one of the authors of the new study and an expert in thirst. Oka says there's a checkpoint in the intestine that verifies that you've drunk water, but that process takes a few minutes, so your brain wouldn't know to tell you to stop drinking quickly enough if it waited for that signal. Water also gets absorbed in the bloodstream, but that takes even longer, 15 plus minutes. Swallowing does work as a sort of meter for the brain to know how much liquid is getting in the body, but it's not a strong enough indication on its own. The checkpoint that really makes the difference? It's in the liver. Once the liquid you've swallowed gets down to your gut, your body will be able to identify it as something that can probably hydrate you, like water or not. Water changes the concentration of nutrients in blood, but how and where does the body sense this change? Oka and his team's latest study on thirst looked at how this worked in mice to get an understanding of what's probably going on in humans as well. Quoting the New York Times, To find out where the body senses changes to your blood's concentration, Dr. Oka and his colleagues first ran water into the intestines of mice and watched the behavior of nerves that connect the brain to the gut area, which are believed to work similarly in humans. One major nerve, the vagus nerve, fired the closest in time with the water's arrival in the intestines, suggesting that this is the route the information takes on the way to the brain. Then the researchers went one by one and sliced each of the nerve's connections to different regions in the gut. To their surprise, nothing changed when they cut off contact to the intestines. Instead, it was the portal veins of the liver, vessels that carry the blood from around the intestine to the filtering organ, whose isolation silenced the messages back to the brain. These veins ferry nutrients and fluid into the liver, so it's plausible that they could be a monitoring center for thirst, Dr. Oka said. The team found that just running water through the portal veins was not enough to get the nerve to fire, however. Something about the water's arrival had to trigger another part of the body's hydration Rube Goldberg machine, end quote. And that something turned out to be a hormone called vasoactive intestinal peptide, or VIP. VIP levels increase when water reaches the cells in the hepatic portal area, causing the vagus nerve to fire and alerting the brain that water has successfully hydrated the body. Why does this hormone tell the brain we've satiated our thirst and not the water itself? 
Christine Browning, a professor in the Department of Neural and Behavioral Sciences at Penn State who was not involved in the study, told NPR that the location of all this happening near the liver makes sense because the brain would want to know what's going on with any blood going there, and that the hormone intermediary, however, is a bit surprising. Quoting NPR, The fluid intake checkpoint near the liver is far from the final one, Browning says. There's then going to be changes in blood pressure and in plasma volume, and those can be sensed as well, she says. The brain even has areas that directly monitor how watery our blood is, Browning says, and all of these checkpoints provide information to the brain that affects how thirsty we feel. The system is complicated because our survival depends on multiple layers of redundancy and multiple fail-safe mechanisms that ensure proper hydration, she says. And that's to be expected given the life-or-death nature of our dependence on water. All of these complex, redundant systems to regulate thirst are great from a survival standpoint, Browning says. It just makes it a little bit difficult when we're trying to figure out exactly the neural mechanisms involved in these apparently very simple responses. End quote. The body is a total marvel. That we do need water to survive sometimes feels like one of those things that makes humans, and all animals I guess, seem kind of weak. Like, we require so much maintenance just to survive. But the ways that our bodies work with so much technical orchestration to make sure we're safe and surviving feels like we're actually super complex and advanced. All I really know is that after all this thirst talk, I definitely need a glass of water. It's Groundhog Day here in the U.S. and Canada, which means local news stations all across the land turned their cameras to bored or irritated woodland creatures and seriously reported on the animals' predictions about our weather forecast. Puxatawney Phil in Pennsylvania is the most famous of all the groundhog prognosticators, and his inner circle of supporters this morning declared that he did indeed see his shadow, and we will therefore be getting another six weeks of winter. But Puxatawney Phil is not the only groundhog who predicts whether or not spring will come early. Though his official website calls all the others imposters, there are a myriad of other meteorological marmots out there, including Essex Ed, Buck Guy Chuck, Dunkirk Dave, Holland Huckleberry, and Chuckles from Connecticut. Not all of them agreed with Puxatawney Phil's prediction of six more weeks of winter this morning, but there was one groundhog and one town usually on that list that we did not hear from at all this year. New Jersey's famous weather-predicting groundhog Milltown Mel died last night, one night before his annual duties. I mean, that's gotta be some kind of omen, right? According to NPR, it's actually happened before, and not too long ago. Stonewall Jackson, who served as prognosticator for a different part of New Jersey, also died on Groundhog Eve back in 2016. I mean, honestly, it's starting to sound like a conspiracy. And Groundhog Day itself is weird enough to give off some conspiracy vibes. When I was looking up this story about Milltown Mel this morning, I started thinking about how weird it is that we actually celebrate this holiday, so then I fell down the... Groundhog Burrow, and came up with some interesting findings about Groundhog's Day. So first, the tradition actually started back in Germany as part of Candlemas, a Christian holiday marking the presentation of Jesus at the temple, which takes place on February 2nd and finally ends the Christmas season. 
Given its timing, there were a lot of different folkloric traditions around the idea of predicting how much longer people would have to put up with winter. The basic idea was that if you had a really nice sunny day with clear skies on Candlemas, that might forebode a harsh extended winter. But if it was an overcast day, you might get an early spring. And in one version of the tradition, you additionally used a badger or a hedgehog to determine this prediction. But when groups of Germans immigrated to the U.S., especially to Pennsylvania, groundhogs were more common, with badgers and hedgehogs not being native to the eastern U.S. So some German immigrants continued the tradition with groundhogs. The first record we have of the tradition being a whole to-do is from an 1886 article in the Puxatawney Spirit newspaper remarking on waiting for the groundhog to see its shadow or not, and the tradition just kept growing from there. The thing about Germans originally using a badger or hedgehog to help predict the weather, though, has its basis in the tiniest hint of science. Badgers and groundhogs hibernate in the wintertime. In colder climates, they typically don't emerge until March, but in warmer years, they might come out early. So I could see how if you did see a badger out on Candlemas, you'd think winter might be ending soon. The shadow thing just ties into the superstition about a nice day predicting more winter weather. But when groundhogs, at least, are emerging, whether early on Groundhog Day or more naturally a bit later, they don't care about their shadow. They're on the hunt for mates. Here's how Stam Servanos, Emeritus Professor of Biology at Penn State Berks, described it to National Geographic, quote, At this time of year, males emerge from their burrows to start searching for the females. The females come out probably seven days later and stay just outside of their burrow or maybe just inside their burrow. After the males determine where the females are, both sexes go back to their winter burrows and spend a little more time in hibernation. In March, they all emerge together, and that's when mating occurs. The Males know exactly where the females are, so mating can occur very rapidly. End quote. So with groundhogs, at least, you get a little bit of a false start on that emergence from hibernation, but not to predict the weather. But Puxatani Phil, Buckeye Chuck, and the late Milltown Mel don't or didn't hibernate because they live in captivity in temperature-controlled burrows. It's all just another part of the conspiracy. That and the idea that the groundhogs are actually doing any shadow-based predicting. In most versions, the groundhog handler just pretends that the groundhog is talking to them and relaying whether or not the groundhog had seen its shadow earlier that day. There's no actual, like, inspecting around the groundhog to see if a shadow has been cast. So really, some dudes are just making it up every year. Which makes it even funnier that last spring there was a peer-reviewed paper published in the journal Weather, Climate, and Society about the accuracy of groundhog predictions. The authors say the idea for the paper came to them over many beers in the campus bar, but they fully executed it nonetheless. Now, unlike previous studies on the topic, yes, there have been multiple, the researchers from Lakehead University in Ontario looked at several groundhog soothsayers, not just Puxatani Phil, and also looked at a more accurate, broad-ranging indicator of the onset of spring. Where other studies use factors like levels of snowfall that are only relevant in climates like Puxatani's, they instead looked at the peak flowering of the Carolina Spring Beauty, a plant that blew early in the spring across all of the locations that the groundhogs investigated in the study are from. 
And to the surprise of no one except the groundhog handlers exceedingly committed to the bit, the team found that groundhog predictions were no better than leaving it up to simple chance. However, they did find some variance between the different groundhogs. Puxatani Phil was correct 52% of the time, Essex Ed, Stonewall Jackson, and Chuckles were correct an impressive 70% of the time, and Buckeye Chuck, Dunkirk Dave, and Holland Huckleberry sadly scored less than 30%. But with a changing climate, I wonder how accurate even this study's results actually are. A completely different study published today in Proceedings of the Royal Society B found that flowers in the United Kingdom, at least, are blooming a full month earlier than they used to in the 1980s. Quoting Science Alert, Obviously not all plants bloom at the same time. Herbs and trees are the first to flower sometime in mid-April, while shrubs take a month longer to open up. The whole timeline, however, has been pushed forward as the climate changes. Today, human-caused global warming is progressing at a rapid and unprecedented rate, and it's impacting the very function of Earth's ecosystems. Something as dependable as the changing of the seasons is no longer so. Early spring warming in the UK appears to be changing the amount of rain that falls and the snow that melts, and both of these factors are important when it comes to a budding flower. If temperatures continue to rise, the authors worry there will be a further shift in first flowering dates, possibly starting March or even earlier. End quote. But if that revelation has put you in a bummer of a mood, you can cheer up with a great McSweeney's piece published today from the perspective of Puxatawney Phil going to therapy and trying to reckon with his Jungian shadow. It's all written with a heavy Pennsylvania accent, which no matter how much Mayor of Easttown I watched last year, I just can't do justice to, so I won't quote from it too much, but I do want to share this one very perceptive line, quote, Deep down, I was terrified. Take away the guys with top hats and I might as well be a rat. End quote. And that's kind of true of the whole holiday. Take away the pomp and circumstance and this holiday pretty much ceases to exist. But I do kind of love it for that reason. I mean, what other day of the year do we get two whole nations semi-seriously reporting on a bunch of men dressed up in costumes pretending to talk to a small woodland animal? We do a lot of weird things in North America, but Groundhog Day is certainly up there. So last month, Pope Francis was spotted leaving a record store called Stereo Sound in Rome. And while he was there on official business to bless the establishment following a recent renovation, a reporter who happened to witness the visit stuck around to speak with the record store owners and discovered that they were friendly with the Pope. Back when he was a cardinal, he used to be a regular visitor at the record store. Pope Francis, it turns out, is super passionate about music and owns nearly 2,000 CDs. This revelation led to a smattering of articles revisiting the Pope's music taste as cobbled together from previous interviews and profiles of the man, quoting Mother Jones, Cardinal Gianfranco Rivasi, president of the Pontifical Council for Culture, told Italian reporters that the Bishop of Rome enjoys a mix of mostly classical, interspersed with the greatest hits of Edith Piaf, gospel hymns performed by Elvis Presley, and, perhaps unsurprisingly, the tango music of his native Argentina. End quote. Gospel hymns performed by Elvis Presley. All right. 
Ravazzi also said that when the Pope shares music with him, the CDs are often accompanied by handwritten notes with careful and extraordinary comments about the piece. The Pope apparently really knows his stuff when it comes to certain music. Kira Hanlon over at America the Jesuit Review put together a playlist of what she thinks are likely some of Pope Francis's favorites, lots of Mozart and Beethoven to start. Pope Francis once described good music as being matchless, and that, quote, it lifts you to God, end quote. Emily Hofstetter at Mother Jones listened to the playlist and came back with a slightly different conclusion, which is that the Pope's picks are all kind of romantic, even sensual. She wrote, quote, I couldn't help but wonder, does the Pope pine for a lost lover when he hears La Vie en Rose? End quote. The playlist is in the show notes if you want to step into the Pope's orthopedic shoes and listen yourself to the music that he personally finds matchless. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.